This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, I speak with Lee Fortson. Lee has co-authored and edited numerous books about health, nutrition, and alternative medicine. And she's also the author of a new Sounds True book, Embrace, Release, Heal, an empowering guide to talking about, thinking about, and treating cancer. Lee spent decades learning about and practicing healthy lifestyle habits and then was shocked to find out in 2006 that she had cancer. Today she has a clean bill of health, I'm happy to say, and lives in Colorado with her family. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Lee and I spoke about what she calls the morphic field of cancer, the importance of accepting responsibility after a cancer diagnosis, and her view of fighting cancer in order to thrive. Is that really the right perspective to fight? We also spoke about the central role of self-love, forgiveness, gratitude, and surrender on the cancer journey. Here's my moving conversation with Lee Fortson. Lee, in thinking about speaking with you, I reflected on what it would be like if I received a diagnosis of cancer. And to be honest, that thought totally flips me out, completely. Where I wanted to begin was with hearing you speak a little bit about what the process was like for you receiving three different cancer diagnoses and what you learned that might be helpful to other people who perhaps are either afraid of such a possibility. I know in the foreword to your new book, Embrace, Release, Heal, Mark Hyman cites the statistic that one in three people will get cancer, a startlingly scary statistic for me. So what's your advice to people who either are afraid of the big C or perhaps have received such a diagnosis, just in terms of dealing with the diagnosis itself? I think the biggest thing we're up against when you hear that you have cancer is that you walk into... Um, what one of the authors that I interview in the book calls the morphic field of cancer. There's a force field that has been created around the word cancer that is so big, it's like a locomotive. And you, you step into this world where all of the subconscious and collective unconscious um, definitions of, of cancer come, come hurling at you. Of course, it's synonymous with death in a lot of people's minds. It's terrifying. Then, of course, there is the the, the treatment, which tends to be brutal, uh, the conventional treatment. The thing that that I think happens that we uh, that part of what my book addresses is that our power is immediately stripped of us. Immediately, our, we we enter an atmosphere where we are told we know nothing, and where we're told what to do. Before I got my first diagnosis, I was writing books about alternative medicine and nutrition, and I, you know, was living a a good, healthy life 
as far as I knew. I got the diagnosis. It didn't even occur to me to look into alternatives. My husband had to take me aside and go, honey, you know, I know they told you to do chemo and radiation, and you agree to it, but don't you think you ought to at least look into the alternatives? It took somebody outside of my atmosphere, the one that I had entered, the morphic field of cancer, to remind me to, to step up into my own authority and to look into options, which I did. I talked to a doctor over in Germany, and basically he said, you know, they have really good luck with chemo and radiation with anal cancer, which was my first diagnosis. It would have cost a lot of money, and it would have been being in Germany a lot. And he said, just stay home. You know, it's, it's good. But to me, when you enter that morphic field, you're bombarded with powerlessness, feelings of powerlessness, with feelings of, of just terror, with a whole new identity. You lose your identity because when you get cancer, not only do you think, I'll speak for myself, not only did I suddenly go, wait a second, this I, I don't fit the profile. I exercise, I eat well, I have a spiritual life. I do not fit the profile. So I went through a huge identity crisis. And what takes over is, the identity of having, you know, being a person who has cancer. And then suddenly all these people treat you differently. It's, it, you, it, everything changes, everything. And one of the messages I really try to drive home with this book is that's not necessary. It's not necessary, but it takes an enormous commitment not to be sucked into that morphic field. Enormous. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned that your cancer diagnoses were related to anal cancer. And cancer itself, let alone anal cancer, seems like it would carry with it a tremendous sense of shame. <laughs> yeah, it's it, there are no pink ribbons for anal cancer, you know, um, and it's it's not a glamorous type of, of cancer. I, I was diagnosed within about two weeks of Farrah Fawcett being diagnosed. So um, ironically, you know, here was a glamour queen who got diagnosed and gave it at least a little bit of public recognition. But it, yeah, I mean, um, you know, friends of mine tried to make jokes about it. You know, I was the butt of the conversation. and But I was mortified. I was really, really embarrassed. I mean, at this point, I have no shame, right? But at that point, it was, um, it was really hard. And then it turned, you know, the second diagnosis was rectal cancer. And then the third was metastasized cancer. So... Yeah, it was it was really tough, and I think if it wasn't for Farrah Fawcett to at least let people know that there is such a thing and it's quite prevalent, it's 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 growing, um, then it would still sort of be in the closet. But at least it's come out a little bit. But what I'm curious about is, you say now you have no shame. You're talking about it. You know, anal cancer, rectal cancer. We can talk about it. Cancer, cancer, cancer. Yeah. But what I'm curious about is, in the beginning, when you did feel that sense of being mortified. What was your process then of working through that shame to the place where you are now? I mean, what can you say to somebody else who might be feeling shame about having cancer? Well, whether it's anal cancer or a different kind of cancer. Um, I mean, anal cancer specifically was hard, you know, to make it through because of, of where it was. How I got from there to where I am now took three diagnoses. I mean, it, it was a long process for me. But I have a friend who was diagnosed with di- uh, with uh, anal cancer about a month before I was, and she was she was very she had a lot of levity. She said it's just another body part, you know. Don't worry about it. For some reason, I I did worry about it. I didn't have that kind of casual relationship with it, and I think um, truly to answer your question, the process 
that, that I went through was long. And it was, um, uh, you know, after that first diagnosis and going through the treatment um, and being embarrassed about the fact that I couldn't sit down and when I finally could, it hurt so much I had to take a pillow with me everywhere I went. It was embarrassing. But I was still in that first diagnosis stage of my journey, which was I didn't get how it could happen. I was angry. I was like, I was so sure that God made a mistake that I was accidentally hit, even though I wasn't really the target. I was just emotionally so distraught. over, And, and the treatments were brutal. I mean, they were... They were so awful. That's part of why it was just, you know, overall, it was just a very difficult experience, partly because of the type of cancer, largely because of the treatment, and um, primarily because my emotional state of mind was wacky and normal, normal wacky, you know, just freaked out. But, you know, whether it's uh, a type of cancer like anal cancer or any kind of cancer, here somebody gets a diagnosis, and perhaps their response is similar in some ways to your initial response, which is one of shame, and or how could this happen to me? I have a good diet. I, you know, I, I meditate, I pray, look, this happened to me. How did you work that out? I, mean, I know you said it was a long process, but how might someone else also work that? How could that happen to me? Well, um, I, I talk about how I worked it out incrementally in the book, and I had three diagnoses, and each one took me further along the journey of working that out. The first, the first diagnosis, I, you know, it was the whole physical experience of having cancer, having uh, uh, chemo and radiation. It was a very physical experience. I did not, I sort of abandoned my spiritual life because I thought, you know, I wouldn't create this. And I come from the camp that believes we create our own reality, and I just dashed it all. I wouldn't do this to myself. After the second diagnosis, I went, oh, it wasn't a mistake. Here it is again. I must really be the object of this experience. So I started embracing it more. I started going, okay, how can I, how can I accept this? How can I learn from this? What did I do, perhaps, to create this? Did I do something? What could I have done to, to create this? Maybe I do need to rethink my spiritual life and go, okay, if we create our reality what part of me created this? Was it my soul that says I just need this experience? Was it my thoughts that may not have been entirely positive? Was it um, old grievances that I held? Was it a dietary thing? Was it too much wine? God knows that can happen sometimes. So I started questioning. I just started examining it. And I went I went to the, a deeper level of trying to understand this. And I came to some very peaceful um, conclusions about it, which is that it was mine in the same way that like a broken arm is is mine. If I break my arm, it's my, it's my arm that's broken. It's not some evil force that comes out from the universe and breaks my arm. It, my arm is broken. It's my cancer. It's mine. And to own it, to take responsibility for it, and to understand that it's part of my bigger story, whether I understand it or not, whether I like it or not, it's part of my story. So how did I feed into that? And, 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 I, and I did a lot of inquiry, a lot of really deep inquiry, and, and started to realize, you know, the emotional life probably really does affect our bodies and ourselves. And so I did a lot of, you know, digging and finding old resentments and doing forgiveness work and, and letting things go and, and really trying to retrain myself 
to live my life in a little bit, in a far more cleaner way. Then with a third diagnosis, which was like, wait a second, I thought I cleaned everything up. What happened here? And then not only was there a diagnosis, there was, it was a grim prognosis. The, the doctors couldn't give me any more radiation because it would kill me. Um, surgery wouldn't work because my skin had been so um, compromised from the radiation that my skin didn't heal after my second diagnosis, I had surgery, and the skin didn't heal for nine months. And chemo wasn't appropriate, and I wouldn't have done it anyway because I don't like chemo. Um, so then I was sort of left with, okay, it's a grim prognosis, and they don't have much to do for me. I guess it's up to me. And then the journey really went deep because I had done a lot of the emotional work. So the first diagnosis was physical. The second was emotional. The third was my spiritual dive into, I want meaning from this, and I also want to live. I want to live. I'm not done, and I've got two kids that mean more to me than anything. I've got a creative life that's still waiting to be lived out. I'm not done. So what do I do? And and it took me into the whole um, uh, field of self-healing and working with my mind, and understanding food as medicine, and um, uh, visualization, and still being open to whatever conventional treatment you know came my way, which it did. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but it was a long journey. I'm curious, you, you mentioned in this third part that you tapped into a very strong will to live. How big a factor do you think that is in people's remission and, and cure rates? It's funny because I I find it hard to call it a will to live because I think will is different than what I tapped into and what I think people tap into when they heal themselves. Will is the energy that you use to carry out what you learn to do. But the initial thrust was, it, it was a combination of sort of surrender to something that you don't understand, that you can't control that you can't comprehend, which goes outside of the, the arena of will. It's like, okay, there's a power in me, in, in all of us. There's something in me that I am asking to tap into, that I, am, I, I, that I will surrender to, that I will give myself to in every way I can, can do that. So it's a combination sort of, of of the will, but it's also this acceptance that it may or may not work, too. It's not like you can just say, I will do it, and, and I'm going to give myself to this journey, and it will absolutely work. I mean, it, I think it's important to believe in it 100%. But along the way, you realize that may not be part of that bigger story that you that, that's being written in a way that is beyond your intellectual understanding. So it's a, it's a combination of will it's, and, and surrender and um, dedication and um, self-love. That may be as much a part of this business of will as anything else. Going to that part of yourself that says, I am going to love myself so deeply and so entirely and in such a healing way that even if this doesn't work, I will be at peace with where I am. I will accept that this is my journey. But the love that I have for myself is going to open up universes for me. In that choice of, of doing it f- not out of 
determination, but out of um, openness, surrender, love, um, doing what you can just to allow, allowing, allowing that that energy to come forward and carry you. It's I, it, it's hard to explain, mm-hmm. but it's bigger than will. Now you mentioned in this post third diagnosis that you were looking for meaning. Mm-hmm. It's like I, I'm going to find meaning in this. What was the meaning that you found or have found? I think there's all kinds of meaning. I think that cancer, especially cancer, but other diseases as well, is a is a call from our soul to realign. And the meaning that I found is also very hard to describe, and it almost sounds cliche, but the meaning was discovering that I am love, and you are love, and we are all the same energetic fabric. The meaning was that I was off course. Somewhere along the way, I got off course, and my body and my soul, whatever mix there is, God only knows, but the, the the manifestation of this disease um, enabled me to look at what was what, how I was eating away at myself. What what was eating at me? What wasn't I at peace with? What wasn't I aligned with? And so the meaning is part of the meaning is is reestablishing what is meaningful in your life instead of giving your your energy and your um, uh, your thought process processes to what you're against and what you're upset about and what you're resenting and what you're angry about, it's realigning and finding the meaning that is proactive and generative and supports love. I mean, it it sounds so, in a way, so simple, and it is, but it isn't necessarily easy to do. Could you describe for us who you were, like the main personality traits pre-cancer and now post the healing of your cancer? What some of the Mm-hmm. main differences might be you know they're subtle um but they're but but i know i'm big time and and one of the best ways i like to describe this is before can- before this whole journey the whole cancer journey as upbeat of a person as i've always been as positive as i've always been as playful as i've always been you know as much as i love people as i always have i would walk into like my kitchen and the first thing i'd notice was those ugly tiles and how you know Someday, damn it, I'm going to change. I, I've got to change those tiles out, and I don't like the countertops either. And you know, look at look at. I'd see the mess, or I'd see what was wrong, or I'd see what was lacking. I I basically didn't even know it, but I did see the world with the glass half empty. I really did, and I didn't even know it because you know, I was pretty happy. But then when my world got turned upside down, I saw the glass is half full, and it's very subtle. I still have those same ugly tiles in my kitchen. And I use that example very deliberately because almost every time I used to walk in my kitchen, I would feel this pang of, oh, I hate those tiles. They're just so ugly. I mean, it's simple, but it's it, it, yeah. it works as an example. Um, and um, now I walk in, and I'm so grateful for my kitchen. I'm so grateful for the running water. I'm so grateful for my beautiful gas stove. I'm so grateful for the counter space that gives me a a place to cook really good food. It really is the difference between, one of many things, but one of the biggest differences between then and now is that now I really and truly live from such a place of gratitude, 
such a place of gratitude. The littlest things are, are, are so incredible to me. And, and, and I, it's, it's much more of a habit now to walk into any situation and to just hone in on what it is that's beautiful and go, ah, oh, look at that. I, I love hearing that. You know, you're a beautiful writer, and I believe that part of what comes with that, part of what comes with the strength of that kind of writing, is that you're a strong critical thinker. And in general, strong critical thinkers have lots of critical thoughts. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, whether it was with relationship, like with my husband, with myself, with my work, whatever, you know, I always was able to pinpoint exactly what was wrong with that thing, damn it, that needed to be fixed. And I could fix it, and, you know, I could make it better. And this caused a lot of problems in my marriage. Uh-huh, yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and I firmly believe that one of the things that contributed to the cancer was, a, was many years of, of intense difficulty between my husband and myself. And that was part of it. It wasn't all of it. But that was definitely part of it. And um, the you know one of the beautiful veils that dropped during the uh, the cancer journey, for him and me, for both of us, was that we suddenly didn't see those parts in each other anymore. They were just gone. The the mm-hmm. that which we didn't like was no longer there. All we saw because when you think you might be on the verge of losing you know things, all of a sudden you you understand the value. And we continue now. I mean, our marriage is like <laughs> it's incredible. In large part because of this journey of going from, you know, what I don't like about you to what, oh, my God, I love about you so much. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, there's still that little stuff. But. Now, you mentioned that in the, now, you mentioned that upon reflection, perhaps some of the conflict between you and your husband, quote-unquote, contributed to your cancer. And you talked previously about this idea of creating our reality and even potentially creating our cancer. And I'm sure you know where I'm going with this because it's such a controversial topic. It's something that I think we really need to address just directly, clearly, and head on, which is blaming ourselves when we are ill versus the idea of being responsible for, as you said, it's mine, it's, it's here, it's part of what I need to attend to. So how have you sorted this out? Well, I think you said it perfectly. There's a huge difference between blaming yourself and taking responsibility. Inherent to blame is um, you somehow did something wrong. Well, wasn't the fact that you and your husband weren't getting along wrong? That's what contributed, uh, no. quote-unquote, to your cancer? No. What I look at in that dynamic is the fact that I was harboring resentment I was harboring blame. I was so convinced I was right. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just where I was. There was nothing wrong with having those thoughts. It just wasn't a very proactive, generative, energetic. I don't blame myself for that because at the time, I didn't see it. How can we blame ourselves for something that we're not aware of? That's, that's key to this th- whole thing. I think w- blame is a product of knowing better than and doing it anyway or finding fault with something because you, you, know, you could have known better and you did it poorly or whatever. Taking responsibility, I think, in, um, intrinsic in, in that is we didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know how, how unfair I was being or how, how much I was harboring. All I knew was what I saw him doing, which was plenty, right? But my, my attention was outward instead of inward. 
And when I started finally realizing that it's the inward experience that will determine the overall outward experience, when I started taking responsibility for that dynamic, for that, for that, for that chemistry of going inward, taking more responsibility, let me just say that when you take responsibility, you know, I'll, again, speak for myself, I know that I don't know the whole story but I want to find out as much as I can. I want to know where my power is in any dynamic. I want to take responsibility for my role. And if those negative thoughts that I harbored contribute to the deterioration of my cells, which I believe that it did, then I get to go, now I know. Now I know. I didn't know then. Now I know. We're not trained in this culture, especially when you step into the morphic field of cancer, that you have that kind of power. We're not trained to take responsibility in that way. But once you once you get a glimmer of it and a taste of it and you go for more and more and you realize that that taking full responsibility for your inner atmosphere, for your inner landscape, for your inner life, you don't have to do you don't have to ask anything of anyone else. It just changes. Things just change. That's huge. That's an amazing revelation to have. But you know, here I think is maybe uh, the most challenging question I yeah. want to ask you. So hang in here with me, Lee, which is uh, I had a friend, someone who uh, was a spiritual teacher who was diagnosed with a type of cancer, and he did everything. Mm-hmm. I'm talking absolutely everything. And he believed he was going to live. I saw him two days before he died, and he told me he was going to live, that he was going to, even though I could see that he wasn't going to be with us very long. He believed it. He thought it. He ate all the right foods. He did uh, everything you could imagine. And he died. What do you make of that? That's the hardest part of all. Because you can think you're doing it all. And that can happen. And that's where I think we have to, once again, surrender to a bigger story. And that story is is not what you expect it to be. It's not what you want it to be. And I do think that there is a bigger story, whether you want to call it our soul or our karma or um, who knows. That's part of the ongoing, never-ending mystery. What do I think of it? I, th- I think it's sad. I, my, my response is, that's sad, because you know he gave himself to it so fully. But is it really sad? Or, or is it exactly the way that it was written that was for his highest good? We don't know. We mm-hmm. don't have a clue. And that's why I say, you know, my journey and what, I, what I'm promoting, if you will, in this book, it's not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee of anything except this. Your life will be more peaceful, I think. Your life can be more peaceful. Your life can be more loving. It can be richer, it can be lighter, it can be transcendent in so many ways, even if you die. But who can argue with that? It's kind of like, whether you live or die, if you open the windows and get fresh air in there, it's going to feel good. Mm -hmm. It's going to make your quality of life so much better. Mm -hmm. Now, I think it's pretty well known that environmental toxins can contribute to the creation of cancer in the body. So do you think it's possible that someone could be 
living with a fabulous diet, exercising, you know, um, basically being a loving person, but still, of course, come down with a cancer diagnosis simply because they're exposed to something toxic in the environment. So when they say, I take responsibility for this, it's like, excuse me? Yeah, I mean, I think I think everybody's journey is unique. And that's that's where it's so important just to go, look, if it doesn't fit for you that, you know, like for me, I can say, I don't think I was exposed to anything environmental. Maybe I was, maybe I wasn't. To me, it makes more sense that it was these emotional, um, this emotional discord and certain judgments I held against myself that contributed to the demise. With, with other people who are, who are, you know, smokers or um, people who are exposed to the, the myriad of um, chemicals that are environment, that are in our environment, um, all you can do is take responsibility for, for doing everything you can to get better. There's no reason to lay some um, thing on yourself about your emotional life if your emotional life is pretty clean. I mean, again, everybody has to be their own authority. This is, this is the big deal here folks, is is we need to go back to trusting ourselves. I'm reading Norman Cousins' book right now, The Anatomy of an Illness, and this was written in the 70s, and this guy was so right on. I mean, he's like, our bodies have this ability, this self-healing ability. It wants to be healthy. It wants homeostasis. So whether you're exposed to an, an environmental toxin or whether it's genetic, which is arguable whether or not genetics has anything to do with it, according to some doctors I interviewed, or whether it's uh, uh, an inner emotional thing, you need to assess your own situation individually and align with whatever you believe is going to be the best course for you. And for some people, like I have one of my dearest friends got breast cancer, and and I don't, you know, we don't talk about the emotional end with her. She did the chemo and had the mastectomy, and she's very happy. Thank you very much. I don't think that was part of her her deal at all. And, you know, who am I to say she should? Uh, you know, in my thing, it, it, in my journey, it was appropriate. But one of the biggest things that I, that I think is happening, this is my theory, that there have forever been internal emotional toxins in within human beings, because, you know, that's just part of the mix of who we are. And I think it's part of what we're, what we're here to do is see how we can transcend those inner emotional toxins. But the combination between the inner emotional toxins and the environmental toxins, the combination of those two things, to me, points to this one in three statistics, you know, the statistics that one in three people will get it. How can our poor bodies absorb the blow both internally and externally? I think that's the question of the year. Well, I want to hear more about your own clearing out of the emotional difficulties that you feel contributed to your cancer? Because you mentioned that after your second diagnosis, you did a lot of emotional work and you thought you were complete, but yet it took the third diagnosis to really get to the root of certain challenges that you had. And I'm, I'm curious about that. What happened in the third phase? What were the roots that you got to? The third phase brought me into the fact that once I was told I had metastatic cancer and he said the prognosis was grim. I was never told I was going to die, but it was pretty clear that that was kind of where we're headed. Um, The third diagnosis took me to working with my belief system. 
The second diagnosis did that emotional work, and that was all really, really, really good. And I did a lot of stuff then. But the next time, the next go round was, if I'm going to heal, I have to believe it, and I don't believe it right now. Everything I'm being told is telling me I'm not going to heal. So that was a journey of brainwashing, literally cleansing my brain of、um, doubting that I could heal. And when I say heal, I mean I believe cancer is a multi-level condition, and to cure it is simply addressing the biology. I think healing is is the whole picture of what we're talking about. So, so the third after the third diagnosis, it was like, okay,、um, I got to work with my thoughts here. I got to I got to find a way to believe that I can heal because I've come to understand after reading Bruce Lipton's book, you know, the biology of belief and Candice Pert's molecule. Molecules of emotion and some of this other quantum physics stuff—it's really clear that what you believe, what you think, is going to kind of pave the way for where you go. And if I'm told I'm going to die, there's something called the nocebo effect. It's the opposite of the placebo effect. Everyone knows what the placebo effect is. You take a pill that's sugar, and you think it's a miracle cure, and you—you know—you get cured of whatever ills you're. Dealing with the nocebo is the opposite. If somebody says you're going to die in six months, that same mechanism in our brain goes, "Okay, our brains are just little servants trying to, you know, do whatever they're told, and our body is the, you know, is the servant to the brain." So it goes, "Okay, we're going to die in six months. Let's gear up, get ready. Okay, break down all these cells, you know, find the casket." I mean, it's 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 powerful. This this. Business of our of our mind and how much power it has on our body and how it determines so much of what can happen. So I was dealing a little bit with the nocebo effect, and I needed to turn that around and really work with my mindset. So I started reading everything I could on self healing, everything I could on how how our how we can heal ourselves,、um, uh, uh, who's healed themselves, what they did.、Um, um, You know, it's it's a it's a long process, and it's different for everybody, I'm sure. But for me, it was just listening to CDs and reading books and、um, affirmations and、um, going to the people who've done it. And and I decided to write a book, in part, in large part, to help me believe I could heal. I needed to hear the stories of people who had healed, so I could start believing my own story that I was going to heal. And that probably more than anything, because everyone that I interviewed in the book who、um, who was a person with cancer was told they were going to die, or yeah, was basically told they were going to die. Not everyone, nine out of ten, something like that. And conventional treatments had failed them, and therefore they had to find their way through. And they were in far worse shape than I was. I mean, one guy had cancer all up and down his spine, in his pelvis. You know, he couldn't walk. He was in a wheelchair, and he, they gave him a couple months to live. He didn't have a spiritual life. He didn't believe in God.、Um, he went to get a haircut because he wanted to look good in the coffin. And his、um, his hairdresser said, "Have you ever worked with a spiritualist?" And he said, "What's that?" And she said, "Well, there's this guy, you know, and he might be able to help you out." And, and The fellow is a pragmatist and decided, well, if there's something I can do to help myself, I will. He wasn't afraid of dying. He had had a near-death experience as a child, and he wasn't afraid of dying at all. But he thought, you know, if I can save myself, I probably should. So he started working with this guy who、um, who taught him visualization. That's all. So this guy did hours of visualization every day, 
You know, he had these little worker bees in his spine with mops, just mopping out what he said looked like dead fish, just all these dead fish in this swampy area. And he just mopped and mopped and mopped. Six weeks later, he was cancer-free. Six weeks! I mean, to me, this stuff is so exciting. It's so exciting. If it can happen to one person, it can happen to many. But he believed it was possible. And that, that is probably the biggest block that we have, is that how many people are going to read this book or hear stories like this and, and believe it? I was at a party recently with a bunch of really smart women, a bunch of attorneys and judges and you know, very bright women. And a couple of them heard some of the stories and just said, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. And a lot of doctors don't believe it. We're, you know, when you enter this realm, you're in a, you're in a real minority of thought form. Most people don't believe it, and it's part of that whole morphic field. They only believe that chemo, radiation, and surgery can work. Well, they can work, but they don't always work, and they very often don't work. That's why I think it's time for us to really consider that there are there's power within us that we can employ. And there's also alternative treatments that are out there that are very viable that, of course, the FDA doesn't approve of and doctors don't even know about. There's a, there's a whole lot more we can do, starting with ourselves and primarily finding a way to believe that we have the power to um, work with ourselves, whether we get to the destination we're after or not. We do have the power to work with ourselves to be well emotionally, hopefully physically, but certainly emotionally. And... That's worth the effort right there. So it sounds like a big part of your journey was meeting people who had cancer and who 10, 20, 30, 40 years later were living well and healthy and had beat the diagnosis totally. That was a big part of your journey. And what I'm curious about is in doing these interviews, meeting these people, did you discover that there were certain common qualities? Like the cancer survivors, this is what they have in common, these qualities. Well, first, I, I haven't met any of them except for one. Um, so all of the interviews were over the phone. But I feel like I know all of them. But to answer your question, um, the one thing they all took responsibility for was themselves and their journey to get better. That's all. It's not like they all did the same diet. They didn't um, all do visualization. They all had a different path of getting to be cancer-free. But the one persistent quality was... They took responsibility for their health. They decided it was up to them, and they found a way. Qigong, some diet. One woman just decided. She just decided she wasn't going to have cancer. So there's, there's all kinds of packages, but as I say, the one common thread was that they took responsibility to get better. One of the interesting things you write in Embrace, Release, Heal, at least it was very interesting to me, is that you say that when it comes to cancer, our cells are acting independently, that the cells are actually rebelling, mm. and that when you discovered this, you started to look inside and ask yourself, what part of myself have I left behind mm. so that there has to be a rebellion? And, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that, what you found, and just that whole idea that part of us is rebelling against the whole of us. Yeah, it's an interesting concept, and that that actually comes from Laura Alden Alden Cam's book, Intuitive Wellness. 
she's interviewed in the book, and she talks about how through her intuitive vision she sees the cancer cells as rebellious. So, so after the the third diagnosis, as I was going deeper um, with trying to find my way through, I, I I asked myself what what part of myself could be rebelling, and I had a very profound answer, very clear. The image of a of a teenage girl just kind of appeared in front of me. And I was driving at the time, so it was kind of odd. But, but, and she, she, it was almost like she was human. I mean, I had a couple of these really sort of, really interesting visions during this journey. But she just kind of was in my face, and she said, "You abandoned me." And I was, I was startled, and I was like, "Oh!" And I immediately knew it, she didn't really look like me, but I knew it was me, and she was my creative self. She was my creative self, and, and I said, "Well." No, I didn't. You know, I, I. What do you mean? And she's, you know, basically the message that she gave me was, "You've known since you were a little kid that that you were here to be creative. You were here. You were put on this earth to be creative, and instead, you know, you got married and had kids, and you have a job, and you know, all this other stuff is happening, and you've left me behind, which isn't true. And I pointed it out to her that I had engaged in several creative projects, and I was writing plays at the time and I had productions done around the country and and but she was persistent and I and I said well and I and I was sort of like I I couldn't believe that the the gall of this little creature to come into my head so clearly and so and so um uh vociferously and and I, I said well what is your name and she said raven and I said raven your hair isn't even black how can your name be raven and at that moment I swear to you two black birds, probably crows, flew in front of my windshield, and I have never come so close to hitting birds with my windshield ever. And the second that happened, I took it seriously, and I went, okay, your name's Raven, and you are here to to talk to me about this feeling that you've been abandoned. And I think for me, you know, I mean, it can be reduced to something a little bit more universal, which is, you know, if you have a dream in your life, and it's strong, and you don't carry it out. It can it, it can eat at you, and some part of you that believes that you came to this planet to carry out this dream or or this purpose or this mission or whatever. If you don't carry it out, and you're not at peace with it, it can eat eat at you. And I and and so Raven was part of my the puzzle that I put together that I believe created the cancer was that she, uh, some part of me was so angry at myself for not being more fully engaged in my creative life that it, it fed into this demise of myself. And I, I, I honestly believe that with all of my heart. And I think that a lot of people let things go because we all get caught up in having to have a job and, you know, getting married and having kids or just getting swept in a different direction. And that, you know, what happens to that part of us that thought that that's what our purpose was? How many of us are really at peace with not fulfilling what we thought was our life's purpose? I wasn't, and I and I, I kind of knew it because I'd kind of get into moments of being a little sad about it, but I didn't realize that there was this part of me that was was so upset, and so it was really great. I mean, it was a wonderful message. It was a wonderful vision to have. And I talked to her whenever I'd meditate, I'd, you know, sort of bring her in and she would die. We would dialogue. It sounds a little skitzy, but, you know, I think we all have a bunch of people living in us. 
And, um, you know, finally, a couple months after I really listened to her and talked to her and reassured her that I was going to write a book about all this. And that was a real good creative thing to do, you know, and we dialogued about whether or not that was going to do the trick and yada, yada, yada. Um, one night I was meditating and she looked real calm and I just invited her over to me and I s- said, you know, she was sitting in a chair all in my mind's mi- mind's eye, of course, but she was sitting in a chair across the room and I just reached out and I said, do you want to meditate with me? And and she was at peace and she said, yeah. And I she came over and I took her hand and, you know, just like in those old 60s movies, we sort of blended and became one. And, and you know, it's integrated now. And every time I see a blackbird, you know, and I bought a beautiful painting that has um, this blackbird sitting on a chair, which is like my writing chair, and it's singing now. It's singing. The bird is singing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think there's so much that we have in us that we leave behind if we're not careful. And sometimes we have to leave it behind. But I just think that, that all of this stuff can go into the mix of disease. One thing I'm curious about is this idea of mobilizing for our health in terms of fighting against cancer versus I'm going to get healthy, but I'm not going to fight. I'm going to work. What do you you think about I'm going to fight the cancer? Well, one of my uh, beliefs is that if if, if we're all energy and if we live... Internally, if our internal landscape is made up of stuff that creates wars or stuff that starts fights, which is usually anger, resentment, fear, jealousy, avarice, um, you know, just the whole list of what I call the attributes of fear. If, 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 if we are fighting something, and that could actually be what causes the demise of our cells— Why would we want to use fighting as a way of healing? To me, we have so many fights going on inside of ourselves. And the war on cancer and the war on teenage pregnancy and the war on terrorism and the war on this and that, are they working? It's it's a whole modality that kind of defeats the purpose. It's like, if the end result is a product of that which creates fights, why would we use a fight to try and heal it? It, it, To me, I really object to the whole battle with cancer, fighting it. If it's part of who we are then I believe that loving and finding peace and finding the homeostasis physically and emotionally to work together is going to be what has a a, a far less destructive impact because that other stuff is so destructive. And, you know, the, the side effects of all that can go on for the rest of your life of the of the fighting at the radiation and the chemo it can also work but there's side effects whereas if you use if you use the very stuff that builds up and encourages and nurtures both physically and emotionally your your physical and emotional body if you if you use the stuff that that shores up what needs to heal, then it's such a different experience. I went to a guy after the third diagnosis who's this brilliant doctor in California, and and I called him on the phone, and I didn't know what to do. I was still just totally freaked out, and and I he said, well, listen, you know, you can go back and use the chemo and radiation if they find some way for you to do that. You can create another war, a third war on your body, 
Or you can try my approach, which is peace. You know, I use herbs and I use food and I use homeopathics and I use, you know, I, I look at the terrain of your body and I see where it's imbalanced and then I build it up. And he, he was totally cool. He said, you need to find out what's motivating you to choose whichever treatment you decide upon because that's going to tell a lot. What's motivating you to choose this versus that? And when I thought about that, I realized that fear was motivating me to go back to the old ways that hadn't worked for me, mm-hmm. to do more of the radiation and chemo and all that jazz. And that he said, my way is the peaceful way. And I thought, am I going to trust peace here? Am I going to trust that maybe something else could work? And again, when you think your life might be at stake, that's a, that's a lot of trust to have to muster. But... Um, it was, a, it was a good insight to look at what was motivating me to choose. Now, with that, I do want to say that I did end up doing a new kind of um, radiation. It's, it, my insurance company didn't want to cover it because it's, like, so innovative, but it's far less damaging, and I, that was part of my protocol in, after the third diagnosis, and I need to make that clear. So I, had, I chose things from across the spectrum. An integrative approach. Yeah, it was primarily not integrative. It was primarily alternative. I became a raw foodist. Um, I started working with all this mind-body stuff, and I, I worked with this doctor, and, and I continue to work with him with herbs and different things and making sure that the terrain of my body is is healthy. I think the part of your story that's most remarkable to me is the birth of the strong self-love mm. in you. And what I'd love to know is how you think that happened. And I'm curious because if someone's listening and let's say they don't feel that, what could help them? Mm. God, um, it's such a huge component. And I've talked to so many people who, who have said, I don't know how to love myself. Where do I even start? Some people think that's synonymous with narcissism. Um, all I can say is it's. I think it's vitally important, and there's a ton of books out there. We are so blessed in this day and age to have publishers like Sounds True who is putting stuff out there that can help us grow, to learn to love ourselves, to just to get to some understanding that self-love is is important and it's healing and it's generative. I think you have to start with self-forgiveness. I mean, the root of all problems in my mind is judgment. If we're judging ourselves or if we're judging someone else or, you know, whatever, wherever our judgments lay, and we always have them and we always will, but it's what we do with them. But if we, if we, if we hold on to judgments of ourselves, that's in and of itself is like declaring war on ourselves. It's so unkind and I think tenderness, being tender with ourselves. I mean, I, I had worked a lot on self-love long before my cancer stuff happened. But it was after my second diagnosis when I had to deal with the very unglamorous task of cleaning out my wound site. They they did ma- major surgery, took out the anus, the rectum, and part of my sigmoid colon. And for nine months, I had an, a wound site that wouldn't heal. And it was messy. And it was gross. And it was horribly embarrassing. It needed a lot of attendance, blah, 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 blah. But one day I was attending to myself and I suddenly realized how tenderly I was attending to myself and how committed I was to myself 
to get well and how nice I was being to myself for not judging myself for having this open wound in my ass and that it it was a real moment where I suddenly looked at myself in the mirror and I thought, wow, I am so lucky to have you in my life to take care of me. And I just, I said, I love you. And I knew at that moment, I mean, I had said I'd loved myself before, but there was some deepening, some quickening, something that just was big in that moment where I thought, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm going to make it through this, whatever happens. I'm going to love myself no matter what happens, no matter how painful, no matter how um, embarrassing. And it isn't even embarrassing when you love yourself. Suddenly it's just like, well, yeah, it's, it's what I'm about. And I just think tenderness and forgiveness and um, how would you treat your very, very, very best friend, your favorite dog, your child? Give that to yourself. Give it to yourself in, in, um, in huge bundles every day. And be grateful. I mean, I think gratitude is one of the greatest, greatest medicines in the world. Panacea is. I mean, and if you can be grateful for those gifts that you have and everyone has them, focusing on your gifts and how you give and giving them to yourself. I mean, again, there's so much stuff out there. We are so blessed to have so many spiritual teachers. A lot of the best-selling authors are talking about self-love. It's nothing to take lightly. I think it is at the core of healing. Mm-hmm. And then just one final question mm-hmm. for you, Lee. I know that you have put your heart and soul into the writing of Embrace, Release, Heal, and I'd love to know what your hopes are for the book, the impact you're hoping it will have. When people get a cancer diagnosis, they suffer emotionally, not everybody, but a lot of people, emotionally and physically. There's so much suffering going on in the world of cancer, and it's just not necessary. And I think that there are so many alternatives, treatments, ways of thinking about it, ways of talking about it, ways of um, of finding strength through it and finding meaning through it, that if we start to just just look at things with a slightly different angle going in, we can have a much a much better experience and beyond better we can have a life-changing experience and my my intention with this book is to share it is to have it available to anyone out there who is looking for a way to empower themselves through the cancer journey it can be so good it can be so such an awakening and so my hope is that that's what it'll do for people Plus, it also tells you where you can get some really good alternative treatments. And I've got more books at the end in the appendix about how to appendix about how to you know work your mind stuff. I mean, you know, there's so much out there. There's so much out there, and it happens all over the place. There are so many people who heal themselves from cancer. There are so many. I mean, it's not a miracle. It happens all the time. So this hopefully will just make people realize that it it can happen. Lee Fortson has written a beautiful book, beautifully written, tons of interviews with both doctors, alternative healers, experts in the mind-body field, as well as people who have 
survived cancer using alternative treatments. It's called Embrace, Release, Heal, an Empowering Guide to Talking About, Thinking About, and Treating Cancer. Thank you so much, Lee, for your courage to reclaim your own creative gifts and take your cancer journey into an arena where it becomes meaningful for so many other people. It is my honor to be here. Thank you so much. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>